You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? And that was an excerpt from Writings on Disobedience and Democracy by Vinnie Paz. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral. This is a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral, and you can find all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You'll also find a link there to send me a message. And some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. This episode, the shit hits the fan. First up, we have a piece written by Diana Cruzman. Published at grist.org. There are forever chemicals in beef now. Not a particular surprise since there are forever chemicals in all of us. But let's see how those forever chemicals got into the beef. Officials in Michigan last week issued the state's first ever advisory for toxic PFAS chemicals, that's PFAS, in beef after finding elevated levels in cuts of meat from a local farm. Beef from the Grostick Cattle Company in Brighton, Michigan, contained an average of 1.9 parts per billion of perfluorooctane sulfonic acid, also known as PFOS, one of the most common types of PFAS. Short for per in polyfluoral alkyl substances. Though the levels weren't high enough to trigger a recall, State officials said long-term consumption of the meat could pose a public health risk and notified customers, including several local schools. Michigan officials called the event a, quote, rare occurrence. But PFAS contamination has also shut down operations at dairy farms in New Mexico and Maine in recent years. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, is working on a plan to regulate the chemicals after years of urging from scientists and environmental advocates who said PFAS use remains widespread despite evidence of the chemical's negative health impacts. Quote, Our food supply is global, and we need help at a national level on testing and standards to protect the public from the unknown risks of PFAS entering the food chain. The executive director of Michigan's PFAS Action Response Team Abigail Hendershot said in a press release. PFAS, a class of chemicals used in everything from firefighting foam to consumer products like nonstick pans and leggings, are known as forever chemicals because they don't break down naturally in the environment. They are also bioaccumulators, becoming more toxic as they move higher up the food chain, making them particularly hazardous for people consuming tainted meat or fish. According to the EPA, research on the health effects of PFAS exposure in humans is still ongoing, but studies have shown the chemicals can affect the reproductive system and may lead to developmental delays in children. 
PFAS can also increase the risk of some cancers, interfere with hormone levels, and reduce the immune system's ability to fight infections, an issue that some researchers have linked to worse COVID-19 outcomes. The chemicals are already found in thousands of drinking water systems around the country, according to the nonprofit Environmental Working Group, as well as in most Americans' bodies. No federal standards currently exist for PFAS in food or water, although the EPA, under the Biden administration, has vowed to study and regulate the chemicals more extensively, pledging to set a national standard for PFOS and perfluorooctanic acid, perfluorooctanoic acid, another PFAS chemical, in drinking water by 2023. Dozens of bills, including a proposed ban on PFAS in food packaging, have been introduced in Congress. While the U.S. military has already begun destroying PFAS-containing firefighting foam after deeming it too risky to use, itself a process that could spread contamination, an investigation by The Intercept found. Michigan regulators traced PFAS contamination at the Grostick Cattle Company to, quote, biosolids that the century-old farm had applied as fertilizer to the crops it feeds to its cows. These biosolids, essentially reclaimed sewage, came from a wastewater treatment plant in Wixom, Michigan, from 2010 to 2015. In 2018, the facility was identified as having received industrial runoff from an automotive supplier along the Huron River. It has since installed pollution controls to reduce its PFAS releases, but the legacy of its contamination has impacted local drinking water supplies, waterways, and farms. Quote, Needless to say, I and my family are surprised to find ourselves and our beloved farm in the middle of a PFAS contamination issue, the company said in an unattributed statement on its website. Although the state is offering financial aid to reimburse customers for the affected meat, the farm has been ordered to suspend operations, but with no financial help from the government. It started a GoFundMe page seeking to raise $30,000 to stay afloat. Quote, Our family farm has been serving the state of Michigan for 100 years, the statement says. It is because of that commitment that we intend to cooperate with all city, state, county, and federal agencies to determine who is responsible for this unfortunate situation. Though Michigan now prohibits farms from applying, quote, industrially impacted biosolids containing more than 150 parts per billion of PFOS, environmental advocates have called for a ban on all fertilizers containing any amount of PFAS chemicals. The contamination, quote, makes clear that human exposure to PFAS from biosolids could be a significant pathway for PFAS to reach humans, Charlotte Jameson, Chief Policy Officer for the Michigan Environmental Council, told MLive.com. We should therefore ban applying biosolids that contain PFAS to crops while we await further sampling and test results. My first exposure pun very much intended, to sewage sludge as quote-unquote fertilizer came from the magazine In These Times. There was a great article and and probably a series of related articles 
um, back in the 1990s, early to mid 1990s, about toxic sludge derived from sewage systems, which were toxic enough that they had to have uh, very special handling in landfilling. And then suddenly, through the magic of renaming the same thing that was there yesterday to something positive, to quote unquote biosolids, and allowing it to be spread onto farm fields, um, you know, made the disposal, quote unquote disposal issue of solid waste from sewage treatment plants, uh, quote unquote resolved. So this mess has been brewing for decades. Um, and here's another piece from in these times. So kudos to in these times. And, uh, I don't remember who wrote that article back then, but here's a piece in, in these times from July, 2017 written by Laura Orlando. The quote land application of sewage sludge has been promoted by the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, since 1993 as the preferred method for the disposal of this byproduct of municipal wastewater treatment. Millions of tons of hazardous sewage sludge have been subsequently spread on farmland and public parks in the United States. Sometimes it's bagged and sold as quote organic fertilizer and compost in garden supply stores. No matter how it's processed or how slick it is marketed as a fertilizer or soil amendment, putting sewage sludge on land is a health and environmental disaster. Has sewage sludge caused any farm damage? Once the sludge leaves the wastewater treatment plant, it is not tracked. There is no national system for reporting sludge-related health or environmental problems, and farmers are not known for having deep pockets, which is what it would take to bring the issue of damages to U.S. courts. Nevertheless, in February 2008, the McElmory's dairy farmers from Georgia received an order and judgment issued by Federal Judge Anthony Alamo of the 11th Circuit Court. The order addresses and confirms that there have been decades of deceit by the EPA and fines against the USDA and the EPA. The court acknowledges that the sludge applications on the McElmory's farm were responsible for killing hundreds of dairy cattle and contaminating the milk supplies in several states. This case allowed subsidies previously only awarded for crop failures due to bad weather or natural disasters to include the injurious effects of land-applied sewage sludge. In his ruling, Judge Alamo said, quote, Senior EPA officials took extraordinary steps to quash scientific dissent and any questioning of EPA's biosolids program. What is sludge? Isn't sludge just treated feces and urine? No, it is whatever goes into the sewer system and emerges as solids from municipal wastewater treatment plants. Sludge can be, its exact composition varies and is not knowable, any of the 80,000 synthetic chemicals used by industry. New chemicals created from combining two or more of those 80,000. Bacteria and viruses, hospital waste, 
runoff from roads, pharmaceuticals and over-the-counter drugs, detergents and chemicals that are put down drains in residences, and of course, urine and feces flush down toilets. Sludge that is heat-dried, anaerobically digested, composted, limed, or otherwise stabilized is called, quote, biosolids, a made-up euphemism for sewage sludge that makes it no safer. In addition to toxic metals, pathogenic viruses and bacteria, some hazardous materials in, quote, biosolids include endocrine disruptors like brominated flame retardants, like PBDEs, which are a lot like PCBs. Phthalates, like DEHP, which is a reproductive and developmental toxin. Persistent and toxic ingredients in personal care products, for example, triclosan and galaxolide. And pharmaceuticals that the human body excretes in feces or urine, for example, hormones from birth control pills, etc. The targeted National Sewage Sludge Survey, a 2009 EPA study, concluded that all sewage sludge contains toxic and hazardous materials, including large numbers of endocrine disruptors, chemicals that cause trouble to the hormonal system. Why dump sludge on land? It's the least expensive way for municipalities to get rid of the semi-solid mud-like material to make room for more. Also, the, quote, land application of sewage sludge can also be called recycling, which helps fool the public and satisfies state and local policy mandates for reducing landfill volumes. There's also lobbying from the sludge haulers, corporations that sign contracts with municipal authorities to remove the toxic sludge from the wastewater treatment plant. They do not want policy changes that will squeeze them out of a revenue stream. Hence, corporations and corporate surrogates constantly and aggressively pressure communities, politicians, and environmentalists to maintain the sewage sludge status quo. Changing federal policy could end this systematic contamination of our food supply and the degradation of our health from sewage sludge. But that raises the question, what to do with it? Keep it off our food, gardens, yards, parks, and fields. Keep sewage sludge out of life cycles. Next up is a pretty comprehensive report. This is from 2001. It's put out by the Toxic Action Center um, and authored by Kay Harris Parnell. From the executive summary, Toxic Sludge in Our Communities, Threatening Public Health and Our Farmlands was written in response to a growing concern and debate about the spreading of sludge on farm fields, woodlots, and rural land throughout Maine. The report provides information about the dangers associated with sludge, as well as recommendations on how to better protect the environment and public health from those dangers at the community level. Part 1. The Trouble with Sludge How Toxic Sludge Became Fertilizer In traditional agricultural societies, human waste was often used to enrich the soil. The Industrial Revolution caused increased urbanization and the need for cities to develop primitive sewer systems to remove human waste. Pipes and gutters were built to dump sewage directly into our lakes, rivers, and oceans. 
As industry increased in America, factories began using these primitive sewer systems to get rid of their waste. This practice continued well into the 20th century, when industry began widely using toxic chemicals. Using the local sewer system as a dumping ground for toxic waste was an easy solution to their disposal problems and was cheaper than treating their waste on site. Sewage loaded with toxic chemicals created major public health and environmental disasters throughout the United States. Rivers caught fire, public drinking water supplies became polluted, and waste washed up on our beaches. Public outcry from the growing number of disasters led to the passage of the Federal Clean Water Act in 1972. This act set water quality standards nationally and provided money to communities to improve sewer systems and create wastewater treatment facilities. Unfortunately, instead of addressing the root of the problem by stopping industrial use and disposal of toxic chemicals, the act instead regulated the amount of pollution large industries could release into sewer systems. By the late 1970s, extensive sewage systems had been built across the country. Wastewater treatment plants were built to separate solid waste from water and following natural and chemical treatment, release water back into the environment, clean of human waste. Unfortunately, they were not built to treat toxic chemical waste. While these sewage systems and wastewater treatment plants improved public health standards and water quality, they have an ironic flaw. The treatment process creates cleaner water, but also creates a toxic byproduct, sludge. In fact, the Clean Water Act rightly defines sludge as a pollutant. Like all waste, sludge must be disposed of in some way. What to do with sludge has been a source of controversy for the past three decades in the United States. And this is, report, of course, is a couple decades old, so we can add a couple more decades to that. Through the 1970s and 1980s, the Federal Environmental Protection Agency strictly regulated the land spreading of sludge, effectively prohibiting much of the waste from being used on agricultural land. Wastewater treatment facilities could only dispose of sludge in one of three ways. By sending it to a landfill, by incinerating it, or by dumping it 100 miles offshore into the ocean. Ocean dumping eventually created large undersea dead areas. In response to public concern, Congress passed the Ocean Dumping Act, which banned ocean dumping of sludge in 1992. Sludge disposal was then largely limited to landfills and incineration that became expensive for the wastewater treatment plants. Municipal treatment facilities then pressured the EPA to relax its standards for the land spreading of sludge on agricultural fields. Following a number of draft rewrites of EPA regulations, corporate sludge marketing companies and municipal wastewater treatment facilities were successful in relaxing the limits of toxins in sludge for land spreading. What was once considered hazardous waste became a fertilizer. By classifying sludge as a fertilizer, it became exempted from several waste management regulations. Municipal water treatment facilities depend upon corporate sludge brokers to dispose of their sludge. To dispose of it, these private corporations convince farmers and landowners across the country 
to spread sludge on their fields as a nutrient supplement for their crops. Sludge is marketed to landowners and consumers in two different ways. The first and most obvious is by offering them free sludge. By convincing individual property owners that sludge is of quote, agronomic benefit to their land. Sludge brokers are finding it extremely cheap, are finding extremely cheap disposal sites for sludge that would otherwise have to be shipped to landfills or incinerators at a cost of approximately $70 a ton. Companies then claim that everyone wins. Treatment plants have a cheap disposal option for their sludge, which gives taxpayers a break, and landowners get free nutrients for their fields. As an accurate result, the sludge brokers walk away with the disposal fees from the treatment facility. The sludge brokers also escape from potential liability, which is now assumed by the farmer or property owner. The second way sludge is marketed is by composting or pelletizing it. Then it can be sold or given away as compost or fertilizer. Since the weakening of sludge regulations in the late 1980s, citizens across the United States, Maine included, have been fighting to keep sludge from being spread on fields and farmland in their communities. The two largest sludge brokers in Maine, as reported by the Department of Environmental Protection, are New England Organics and Cinegro, formerly, formerly BioGrow. Activists fighting sludge are up against formidable opponents. Water treatment facilities and sludge brokers have formed powerful trade groups, such as the New England Biosolids and Residuals Association, NEBRA. NEBRA, in turn, is part of an even larger and more powerful group, the National Biosolids Partnership, which is a coalition of groups such as the EPA and Water Environment Federation, whose primary responsibility is to change, quote, public perception about sludge spreading. This infuriates me. The way that governments and industries deal with their toxins is not to understand the reality that they have a toxic problem or a toxin problem, but to instead twist everything and treat it as if they have a public perception problem and thereby manufacturing the consent, manufacturing a public perception that toxic sludge is good for you. Toxic sludge is good for you is the name of a book by um, Sheldon Rampton and John Stauber, I believe. Uh, the subtitle of that book is Lies, Damn Lies in the PR Industry. Uh, another place where there's a, a good section there on toxic sludge and the reimagining of toxic waste as a beneficial product. It's infuriating. Toxic Secrets of Sludge Land applied sludge is required by Maine and federal laws to have toxic levels below certain limits and it is treated with lime to reduce pathogen levels. However, no sludge in Maine is completely free of toxic chemicals or pathogens. In fact, after it is treated, Class B sludge still contains a significant amount of pathogens. The problems with sludge include 
Sludge contains heavy metals, toxic chemicals, and pathogens. The testing and regulation of sludge is inadequate and problematic. And sludge odors pose a public health threat and lower Maine's quality of life. Water treatment trade groups and sludge brokers tout the agricultural use of sludge as, quote, recycling. To recycle is to extract and reuse useful material from waste. Sludge spreading, as it is currently practiced, should not be confused with recycling. Sludge spreading redistributes heavy metals and other toxins from large towns and cities to rural areas. It does not recycle them. Sludge lobbyists also claim that sludge standards are such that waste poses no threat to human health, wildlife, or the environment. The truth is, however, that many adverse health effects, several human deaths, and numerous livestock losses have been associated with sludge use. Toxics in sludge. Heavy metals. All sludge in Maine contains heavy metals. In Maine, wastewater treatment plants usually test monthly for 10 heavy metals. Arsenic, cadmium, chromium, copper, lead, mercury, molybdenum, nickel, selenium, and zinc. These metals are persistent. That is, they do not break down in the environment and therefore build up over time. As the Cornell Cooperative Extension states, quote, most heavy metals remain in the soil for long periods of time, ranging from several decades to many centuries. The heavy metals in land spread sludge therefore become permanent additions to the total quantity in the soil. Even extremely small amounts of heavy metals in sludge, therefore, are dangerous. High levels of arsenic in food or water can be fatal. Cadmium, chromium, nickel, and selenium have been linked to cancer. Cadmium has also been linked to kidney problems, miscarriages, and stillbirths. Copper, nickel, and zinc are known to cause growth problems in crops. Children exposed to lead can develop behavioral and learning problems. Mercury exposure at key moments in fetal development can cause learning disabilities and neurological disorders. Molybdenum bioaccumulates in grass-eating livestock. Ingested in excess, it can cause anemia, diarrhea, and growth problems. These metals can be taken up by the plants that are grown on sludge and re-enter the human food chain via livestock feed. These metals can also leach into the groundwater. Highly acidic soils like those found in Maine can exacerbate heavy metal leaching. Pathogens, bacteria, viruses, and parasites. Sludge, by its very nature, contains human pathogens, germs such as bacteria, viruses, and parasites. Whereas exposure to heavy metals can cause problems over time, exposure to these germs is more acute and can cause health problems almost immediately. Because of the extremely large numbers of pathogens that exist in the world, it is impossible to test sludge for all types of pathogens. Some common pathogens in sludge include the bacteria E. coli and salmonella, the virus hepatitis A, and parasitic worms. Pathogens can cause intestinal problems, other serious illnesses, and death. Land-spread sludge can be treated to nearly eliminate pathogens. By composting sludge, for example, pathogen levels can be reduced significantly. Unfortunately, federal and state laws allow Class B sludge, which has not been treated to the strictest pathogen reduction methods, 
to be spread. In other words, sludge with live pathogens is being spread throughout the state. In Ohio, workers handling Class B sludge became infected. The Centers for Disease Control conducted an investigation and found that pathogens in the sludge was a probable source of the infections. Unfortunately for the residents and workers of northern New England, wet and overcast climates encourage pathogen growth. Researchers have found that pathogens can survive in sludge for weeks, months, or even years after reduction treatment processes. Humans can be exposed to sludge pathogens in a number of ways. We might consume vegetables that have pathogens on them. Children might accidentally gain access to a sludge field and become exposed to the germs. Pathogens can also be spread by pets or wildlife such as deer that walk through a sludge field. In Maine, many snowmobile trails used by hunters and off-road vehicle riders in winter months run through sludge fields. Dioxin, the Darth Vader of Chemicals Dioxin is the unwanted byproduct of chemical processes involving chlorine. According to the EPA, sludge spreading is the largest land distributor of dioxin nationally. Dioxin is a known carcinogen and has been linked to reproductive problems, genetic damage, and endometriosis. Scientific evidence suggests there is no safe exposure level to dioxin. As one well-known dioxin expert called it, dioxin is the Darth Vader of chemicals because you can't see or taste it, but it is deadly. According to the Maine DEP, the source of dioxin contamination in sludge is not known. It might be discharged into the sewer system by unknown industrial or residential sources. Dairy cattle grazing on sludged land may ingest dioxin and the chemical will then enter humans via milk and meat. What we don't know can hurt us. The Federal Environmental Protection Agency estimates that there are 70,000 synthetic, not naturally occurring, chemicals. Yet only 2% of these chemicals have been fully tested. In fact, even the most basic toxicity testing results cannot be found in the public record for nearly 75% of the most widely used of these chemicals. The ways in which these chemicals affect human health and the ways in which they interact with one another in the environment their synergistic effects are not always known. Despite this, industry only needs to report the discharge of 1% of these chemicals into waterways and sewers. Although industries and households release thousands of chemicals, Maine sludge is only regularly tested for 10 heavy metals, occasionally tested for dioxin and toxic pesticides. Where do these toxics come from? Sludge contains heavy metals and other pollutants because industry and households use and release far too many toxic chemicals. The sources of the contaminants in sludge are many, depending on the specific water treatment facility and the community it serves. Sources of contamination include industrial releases, small business discharges, hospital releases, household waste, leachates from landfills and Superfund sites, including nuclear waste dumps and municipal water and sewer systems as a whole. Everything that is discharged into a sewer that leads to a water treatment plant could potentially become part of the sludge that the facility produces. 
if a worker at an industrial facility accidentally dumps toxic chemicals down the drain, instead of disposing of it properly, those chemicals could end up in the sludge. Likewise, if a home gardener rinses out a bottle containing toxic pesticides in the sink, those toxic pesticides could find their way to the sludge. Industrial Hazards As discussed earlier, many chemicals used by industry have not been properly tested and are not regulated or reported. Additionally, even at the safest facilities, accidents happen and toxic chemicals can be released into the waste stream. Maine requires wastewater treatment plants to work with large industries on reducing and monitoring their waste discharge. This, quote, pre-treatment process is required of companies that discharge a large amount of waste into the sewer system or use a large amount of chemicals that could affect the operation of the sewer system. Unfortunately, once companies release heavy metals or other toxins into the sewer system, there is no process to remove these chemicals from the sludge. In addition, every industry in the country can discharge 33 pounds of hazardous waste every month into wastewater treatment plants without penalty or reporting. Many small businesses are not regulated for their toxic releases, nor are they included in the pretreatment process. While auto garages, dentist offices, photo developers, dry cleaners, and other small businesses may not individually release large amounts of toxic chemicals, taken as a whole, their contribution to chemicals in sludge could be dangerous. All hospitals are required to dispose of toxic chemicals and biohazards in a state-approved manner. Nevertheless, accidents do happen, from a broken mercury thermometer to additional human pathogens being washed down the drain, hospitals can contaminate sludge. Many towns and cities have water and sewer systems made with lead and copper pipes. Lead, copper, and other metals often leach into the waste stream and contaminate sludge. Contamination of sludge can also occur if a town's reservoir is polluted with pesticides and other chemicals, for which testing is not required. Household Hazards from pesticides, including flea shampoos, to heavy-duty cleaning agents and hair coloring products, toxic chemicals containing toxic chemical containing products abound. Any of these chemicals dumped down the drain could end up being spread on a farm field or in a forest. Sludge regulation is problematic. It is nearly impossible to know the exact levels of toxic materials in each batch of sludge, because what is released into the waste stream varies day to day. While sewage waste is treated at wastewater facilities for several days, not every batch of sludge is tested before it leaves the plant. It is more due to economics than to concerns for health protection that sludge generators do not test the waste more frequently. For example, waste is often only tested for dioxin twice a year because of the cost of the test. A worker may accidentally spill pesticides into a sink or storm drain, or someone might illegally dump other toxic chemicals down the drain. And no matter how strict regulations are in the law books, testing could miss these sudden increases in contaminants. Regulations and testing cannot guarantee sludge safety until toxic chemicals are removed from industrial household use. Sludge stinks. The Maine Wastewater Control Association, a trade group of water treatment facilities in the state, claims, quote, temporary odors are a necessary inconvenience in the practice of agriculture. 
The association also claims that sludge smells similar to manure and that the smell will dissipate, quote, within several days. Despite industry propaganda, studies have shown that sludge odors are more than just a nuisance. They are a public health threat. Harmful gases called organic amines can develop from chemical reactions that occur in sludge. These gases are released when the pH of sludge is raised above 10, such as when lime is added. Studies suggest that sludge odor can cause health problems in humans as far as 1,600 feet from a site. A study performed by a former EPA sludge regulator linked sludge odors to, quote, severe irritation to mucous membranes followed by respiratory infections in residents living near a sludge site. Irritations of the eyes, throat, and skin make infection from pathogens in sludge more likely. The study was conducted following the death of a New Hampshire man suffering from respiratory distress in the vicinity of a sludge site. Residents near sludge sites have not been the only victims of sludge odor. Symptoms associated with organic amine poisoning frequently occur among waste treatment plant workers and drivers who haul sludge. Deaths associated with sludge. At least two deaths have been associated with sludge spreading. In October 1994, an 11-year-old boy named Tony Behan went dirt bike riding near his home in Osceola Mills, Pennsylvania. Unknowingly, the boy rode through a field covered in Class B sludge. He came home covered in dirt and grime. Two days later, he developed a sore throat, headache, and a boil on his left arm. Brenda Robertson, his mother, took him to the doctor who prescribed flu antibiotics. The next day, Tony had trouble breathing. He died after being flown by helicopter to a hospital in Pittsburgh. The final diagnosis was that Tony had died from a bacterial infection. How her son contracted the infection remained a mystery to Brenda Robertson until five years later when she read about an investigation into her son's death by the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection. Without consulting Brenda, the state published a report concluding that Tony died of a bee sting and that Class B sludge was not spread on property that he went riding on. After Robertson protested that her son was not stung by a bee before his death, the department conducted another investigation. The new probe concluded that sludge was spread near Robertson's home, but the boy's death was caused by the pathogen Staphylococcus aureus, which, quote, is not known to be found in biosolids. Despite the Pennsylvania DEP's statement, the federal government lists Staphylococcus aureus as a potential pathogen in sludge. Another sludge-related death occurred in Greenland, New Hampshire. In late October of 1995, the Marshall family had their otherwise quiet lives tragically disrupted. Sludge was being dumped on a field in their rural neighborhood. This was just the beginning of the residents' problems. On Halloween, Joanne Marshall rushed home from work to take her little girl trick-or-treating. When she arrived home and jumped out of her car, she was, quote, greeted by such a stench, it took her breath away. The Marshalls and their neighbors began suffering from nausea, vomiting, stomach cramps, migraine headaches, flu-like symptoms, slowed reflexes, and respiratory problems. Joanne, concerned that so many people in her area were ill, contacted Health and Human Services. 
The man with whom she spoke told her that the sicknesses in the neighborhood had been experiencing were symptoms of sludge exposure. She was given the names of several people to contact to test the sludge, but phone calls were either rudely returned or not at all. On Thanksgiving Eve, Joanne kissed her son Shane goodnight, not knowing that it would be for the last time. Around four in the morning, Joanne's other son screamed that Shane was unconscious in his bed. Shane was rushed to the emergency room where he soon died. The autopsy stated that Shane died of respiratory problems, though the underlying cause was, quote, inconclusive. Meanwhile, other residents in the neighborhood were suffering from pleurisy, abscesses, cysts, unstoppable nosebleeds, migraine headaches, and tumors. Many pets in the neighborhood also died from tumors. Sinegro, the sludge broker, maintains that there is no proof connecting sludge spreading and health ailments. That is the end of part one of this study. It goes on to provide a lot of details about sludge in Maine, sites, contaminants, um, all kinds of other information and detail. Once again, this is published at communityactionworks.org. It's called Toxic Sludge in Our Communities, Threatening Public Health and our farmlands and it has a few sidebars throughout the story and I definitely wanted to read this first one what's in a name sludge by any other name still smells as bad after the EPA relaxed the toxic limits of sludge making it easier to spread the waste corporate marketers had a difficult time convincing farmers to accept their product because of the negative connotations with its name. A public relations and lobbying firm, Powell Tate, was then hired with money from an EPA grant to come up with a more aesthetically pleasing name for the products marketed from sludge. The PR firm coined the term biosolids. This renaming has confused the debate over sludge and has hidden the source of this toxic product. There you go. Problem solved. You just call your toxic sweet lemonade and everything is resolved. There's no more problems from it. People will drink it up and not think about it again. And unfortunately, that is too close to reality. Finally, here's a piece just published about a week ago. This is published at mainpublic.org. This is written by Kevin Miller. Complete crisis as PFAS discovery upends life and livelihood of a young Maine farming family. The temperature had finally crept above zero on a recent morning as Johanna Davis and Adam Nordell walked along the snowy path leading to one of three greenhouses on their organic farm. The unheated 3,000-square-foot greenhouse was less frigid but still cold. Adam sang the praises of spinach as Johanna pulled back fabric to reveal rows of baby plants growing in Unity, Maine, in the middle of a winter. Spinach is amazing, Adam said. 
Spinach can just hang out in the bone-cold frozen soil at 15 degrees below zero, and once it warms up, it is able to move water around and perk right up, and it'll go all winter. It gets incredibly sweet. Adam and Johanna had planned to sell spinach and other leafy greens this winter from Songbird Farm. But now those plans are on hold along with everything else on the 20-acre organic vegetable and grain farm where they live along with their three-year-old son. The couple hired a private laboratory last fall to test their water, soil, and some crops after learning that the land had been repeatedly fertilized decades before they purchased it with municipal sludge that was potentially laced with forever chemicals known as PFAS. The results arrived just before Christmas. Complete crisis, Johanna said, while seated back inside the family's modest farmhouse. Just devastated. Heartbroken. Really angry. Terrified, added Adam. The water they drink and give to their toddler son contains 400 times more PFAS than the state says is safe. Their soils are also contaminated. Songbird Farm is the latest victim of a growing PFAS problem, and some would say a crisis that has Maine's large farming community on edge. The culprit is a class of industrial chemicals, per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, that have been widely used for decades in firefighting foam and to make many of the conveniences of modern life, non-stick frying pans, stain-repellent carpets, waterproof jackets, and fast food wrappers that don't get soggy with grease. But PFAS have been linked to a long list of health problems, including cancer, kidney malfunction, and low birth weight. Now the chemicals are popping up in farm fields and drinking water wells across Maine. The Department of Environmental Protection plans to test more than 700 sites where farmers spread sludge that the agency says had a higher risk of PFAS contamination. Farmers obtained the fertilizer through a program the DEP licensed and promoted, but that has left a toxic legacy. Quote, I wanted to say that the hearts of everyone at DEP go out to the people who have been impacted by PFAS contamination. DEP Commissioner Melanie Loisem told lawmakers last month during a legislative briefing on PFAS. It is like a nightmare you can't wake up from. People's homes and livelihoods have been destroyed, and the scale of the tragedy keeps growing with every sample that we take. PFAS is a national problem, oftentimes near military bases and industrial sites. But Maine may be more vulnerable because the chemicals were used by paper mills, tanneries, and other manufacturers. They are known as forever chemicals because they do not break down naturally and aren't removed by conventional wastewater treatment. As a result, these forever chemicals are showing up in the soils and groundwater of farmers that accepted that free fertilizer as well as neighboring properties. So far, PFAS contamination has shut down two dairy farms in Maine and prompted Songbird Farm to ask retailers to pull vegetables and grains from store shelves. 
The agricultural community is bracing for more cases as the state embarks on one of the nation's most aggressive testing campaigns. The state has agreed to install hundreds of water filtration systems. The Maine Department of Agriculture, Conservation and Forestry also plans to cover farmers' financial losses for up to one year. But Nancy McBrady, the PFAS point person at the Agricultural Department, says that the $30 million currently earmarked for PFAS won't compensate for lost livelihoods and ruin property values. McBrady said the state is looking to federal officials and Congress for help, bearing what is expected enormous costs nationally dealing with PFAS pollution. Quote, I do think that there's a real conversation that needs to be had at the state level, at the legislative level, about what else is needed, McBrady said. The really robust support that has been provided to date by both to DEP and Department of Ag is not enough and it doesn't make these homeowners or farmers whole. Maine has one of the country's youngest and fastest growing farming communities, so the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association has been fielding calls from nervous farmers and trying to help them decipher decades-old DEP documents showing where sludge may or may not have been spread. Quote, And that uncertainty, that unknowing, is causing a lot of stress in the community right now, said Sarah Alexander, MOFCA's executive director. And it is causing a lot of stress with consumers as well. We want to know that our food is safe, and I believe that our local food system is safe. Alexander said Maine is by no means unique when it comes to PFAS issues, but believes Maine could set a model for other states through its response. And she said state as well as federal officials will need to step up with additional resources for impacted farmers and homeowners. It's so too late. Back inside their rustic farmhouse near a toasty wood stove, Adam Nordell said those decisions carry enormous short-term and long-term consequences. It was an expensive mistake to spread sludge, Adam said. The couple bought the farm in Unity in 2014 after running small-scale organic operations on leased lands in western Maine. Only about five acres are tillable, so the couple leases another 15 acres directly across the road. Johanna gave birth to their son three years ago, and the couple have spent tens of thousands of dollars on improvements, such as a vegetable washing and packing house, solar panels, and a third greenhouse. Their latest investment was a new irrigation well, just last year. They sell wholesale vegetables such as tomatoes, melons, sweet potatoes, and greens to food co-ops in Midcoast and Central Maine. The family also mills their own wheat, rye, and oats and other grains on site and sells them to 100 customers participating in their home baker's program. Quote, Then it turns out that water that we are drinking is highly toxic, that food that we are selling to people has levels of chemicals in it, that from living here, that Adam and myself and our child have industrial levels of chemicals in our blood, Johanna said. It just seems so crazy, so backwards. While some urged the couple to hold off until follow-up testing was complete, Johanna and Adam opted to ask all stores to pull any of their products from shelves and posted an emotional message on the Songbird Farms website. Transparency and trust, they said, are key to Organic Farms' relationship 
with customers. Quote, Our presumption is it is not safe until someone is able to demonstrate to us that it is safe, Adam said. And he nailed, nailed it on the motherfucking head. If only, if only we had the intelligence to adopt this, sometimes called the precautionary principle, that everything, every chemical, every thing that industry creates and puts out is assumed to be toxic until it is proven that it is not, then we would not be in the mess that we are in. But we don't. The EPA, no government agency works on the precautionary principle. You do not need to prove that your product is safe to release your product. It is the most egregious backwards way to manage new products, new chemicals, new substances being put into the environment to say, go ahead and do it until we can prove that it's harmful. It kills people. The couple vacillates between fear, anger, and frustration. They're awaiting test results on 1,000 pounds of sweet potatoes in storage, as well as follow-up tests from soil and water samples. And they are extremely concerned about their three-year-old son, given research on PFAS in developing bodies. Quote, At least we know and we can stop drinking our water, but who still doesn't know? Johanna said. Who is drinking water right now? that's as high as ours. Who is about to have a baby? Who is thinking about having a baby? It is so too late. It is so too late to be telling everybody this. And it can't be soon enough. Adam said the state must assure farmers and homeowners that it will provide long-term financial support. Quote, to leave people in limbo is untenable, Adam said. It's not going to be good for the farming community, and it's not going to be good for the state to do that. And I know that everyone is scrambling to catch up on this issue. We're just learning about PFAS contamination in Maine. We're just acknowledging it. It's 30 years old, but we're just recognizing it. Fuck our goddamn systems that allow this to happen. And don't give a shit about the consequences. And every damn company that made their dollar, it made an extra dollar because they didn't have to take care of their own waste, their own toxic garbage. They could find a way to, to dump it on the environment to dump it and victimize people for decades and decades to come. And on that note, that will wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral. 
can check out all the back episodes at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You can listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. Now, a moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. Well, we've seen that in history. We've seen people say, oh, I will never yield. I will never give in. And they gave in. When enough people got together, when enough people organized, they, they gave in. We've seen that again and again. Uh, I remember George Wallace uh, getting up uh, before a crowd of, of, of uh, his Southern supporters uh, and uh, saying, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, and wild applause. Two years later, the segregation signs were down in the South, and Wallace was campaigning in the black neighborhoods for support in his presidential race. Things change. Things change. It's up to us to move that change along. Uh, It's up to us to bring democracy alive.